0: Good afternoon, everyone. Um, I'm Paul Levengood, president of the Virginia Historical Society, and I'd like to welcome you to another Banner Lecture here in the Robbins Family Forum. Um, As always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make these lectures possible. And now, if you will silence those cell phones, it's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. As I just mentioned, our next lecture will be about the end of World War I, Today, we jump ahead half a century to American involvement in a very different sort of war. By 1968, the United States had been heavily engaged for nearly a decade in former French Indochina, defending South Vietnam against a rebellion supported by its communist neighbor to the north. The year 1968 marked a crucial turning point in that conflict. During Tet, the Lunar New Year holiday, the North Vietnamese and their Viet Cong allies staged attacks across South Vietnam. None was more dramatic than the assault on Hue, the old imperial capital. The fighting there lasted a month, during which time the Viet Cong executed thousands of civilians. After intense urban fighting centered on the imperial citadel, the offensive ended in crippling military defeat for the attackers. Yet the ferocity of their assault led to a political setback for the United States as critics at home gained traction and public support for the war eroded. Today's lecture is part of the VHS's commemoration all summer long of the Vietnam War era. And we are privileged to hear today from a participant in the desperate battle for Hue City four decades ago. Lieutenant General Ron Christmas is President and CEO of the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. As such, he is instrumental in raising awareness and support for the National Museum of the Marine Corps. If you haven't been there yet, you have a real treat in store. You owe it to yourself to take the short drive up I-95 to Quantico and spend some time in the museum, a living monument to the honor, courage, and commitment of the Marines. It's a tremendous asset for all of us, in telling a large part of our history as a nation, from founding to the present day. And for me personally, as the grandson of a World War II Marine combat veteran, the museum is an incredibly moving reminder of what makes that branch of the service so special. Ron Christmas was commissioned into the Marine Corps through the NROTC program at the University of Pennsylvania in 1962. He served in various infantry command and staff assignments as a company grade officer. These included Command of Company H, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines in Vietnam. He was seriously wounded during the battle for Hue City in 1968, and for his actions there was awarded the Navy Cross. After Vietnam, he held increasingly responsible posts as commanding officer and then commanding general of units within the Corps. After his final assignment as deputy chief of staff, manpower, and reserve affairs, he retired in 1996, completing 34 years of active duty. However, as he just said, he sort of flunked retirement. because Since then, if anything, he's become more active. In addition to his full-time focus on the museum, he has served as a trustee of the Marine Corps University Foundation and ex-officio governor of the Marine Corps Association. Truly, he personifies the Marine Corps motto, Semper Fidelis. So, I'm delighted that Christmas has come early this year for us here at the VHS, and I'm sure he's never heard that before. (laughs) So please join me in welcoming Lieutenant General Ron Christmas, who will speak to us on the Battle of Way City, South Vietnam, 1968.
1: Well, thank you all very much, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm truly very honored and privileged uh, to be able to join you here at this uh, lecture series. Uh, Clearly I'm honored because it's great to see that you are remembering those who served during that Vietnam War and you're looking in to what was a very important part of our history as a nation. I'm privileged because there is nothing better than the Virginia Historical Society and the members that make it up. What I would hope to do uh, this afternoon for you is give you a perspective on the Battle for Way City. The Battle for Way is one of two pivotal battles that would take place during this great offensive, this general offensive that occurred which is known as the offensive, or Tet Offensive, of 1968. And as Paul has already indicated, as many historians will say, and many who have researched the war will say, in many ways, the Tet of 68 and that offensive truly was our Gettysburg. It was a true turning point. And it would be a point in time when popular support where the effort would be truly lost, although it was waning at the time, and it would be a time after that great offensive, it would be a time when, quite frankly, our political will would totally wane. Now, while it would take a number of years before we would withdraw uh, from Vietnam, clearly TED of 68 is truly a turning point in that era of history for a nation. Now what I hope to do also is to give you the perspective of a young captain, of a company commander, and of his Marines, could be an Army captain and his soldiers, who are facing what I would tell you is the most difficult of all conflict and combat, and that's urban combat. That's retaking an urban area. That's fighting in the city. Because city fighting, much like the fighting that has been done by our Marines and soldiers in Iraq, and perhaps will be done again in Afghanistan, city fighting is fighting that is, in fact, up close. It's fighting that is very personal. It's fighting in an arena that is fraught with noise, with debris and with emotion and it's all very up close and personal because you and your enemy are really no more usually than 35 meters or less apart. It's a very personal fight. What I hope to do is I hope to kind of express that as we talk about the battle for Way City because as you think about it, perhaps it will give you a perspective of when we send our young men and our young women in harm's way and they are great young men and women today that wear the uniform of our nation, uniforms of our nation that you'll get a better perspective of what it is that they face. What I'd like to do as we kick off the story of the Battle for Way is to kind of set the scene, to set the scene through a documentary of about eight minutes that I think will give you a feel for what urban combat is all about.
2: ...was even more savage here, in Hue, the former imperial capital, considered by most visitors to be the most beautiful and serene city in all of Vietnam. Tet changed all that. On the north side of the Perfume River, the enemy took control of much of the citadel, an almost impenetrable fortress built in 1802. But South Vietnamese forces held on to the northeast corner. On the south side of the river... Communist forces attacked the U.S. military advisory compound. American Marines were called in to break the siege, but the progress was slow and deadly. John Lawrence was there.
3: On the fifth day of the battle for Hue, the Marines moved out from the fortified army compound that would the original attack and advanced into the empty, abandoned buildings of what was Hue University. Hue, the ancient imperial city... It is to Vietnamese what old Boston is to Americans, where many of its country's leaders are born or educated, where many return to celebrate Tet a week ago when the fighting began, where many remain hidden in the unknown interior of the resistance. Colonel Cheatham, uh, what's the objective and your, what are your men about to do?
4: Well, I've, I've got two companies here that are just about to clear the next two blocks up. Uh, I've got one company in this, in this big building here that I guess at the end of the way University, and they are going to start firing in support of Foxtrot company which will be going up this road here on the left and attempt to take a couple large wall buildings that are on up about five or six hundred meters What kind of
3: fighting is it going to be It's
4: house to house and from room to room
3: nope. kind of inch by inch that's, that's exactly what it is how you? ever expected to experience this kind of street fighting in Vietnam? No, I
4: didn't, and this is my first crack at uh, street fighting. I think this is the first time the Marine Corps has been street fighting since Seoul in 1950.
3: And a little bit in Santo Domingo? And a little bit there, yes. right. What's going to happen to civilians who might get caught in there?
4: Well, we're hoping that we don't run into any civilians in there right now. If they are, I'm pretty sure there are civilians that are what we would consider the bad guys right now. We have certain areas in here that we have blocked off that we know there are friendly civilians and we aren't going to take those under fire. The others? The others, if there's somebody in there right now, they're Charlie as far as we're concerned.
3: Contact. The first sniper shots ricochet around the thick walls of the building, taking the first casualties of the first squad. The snipers Maybe only two or three are visible in the buildings beyond the wall, but there is also a machine gun down the street to the left. They have covered every angle but the few feet of dirt and cactus behind this wall and the one 40 feet ahead. The platoon leader has called his men forward. There is to be an assault. First, a barrage of cover fire and then a charge across the street. The assault. But only one Marine runs forward into the fire, expecting the others to follow, not looking back to find out, disappears behind the cover at the wall before long is shot and wounded. Two other Marines. One of whom is killed get beyond the wall. And by night and the next day, the Marines have not been fired. It. it is inch by shattered inch in the five-day battle for Hue.
2: Much of the news filmed during Tet was flown to Tokyo and fed to New York by satellite. In some cases, only those early satellite feeds remain, pictures less than perfect but gripping nonetheless. Here, a Marine Corporal moves into the line of fire to rescue a wounded foreman. A few days later, Don Webster witnessed another act of courage.
5: For days now, they'd been fighting their way, bloody inch by inch, down Lanois Street. And all that time, they could see down the street a flagpole, and on it was a Viet Cong flag. Much is left in shambles. As the Marines advance, building after building, the North Vietnamese retreat. Building after building, giving up nothing without a fight. Roger, that
4: was a uh,
2: that was some sort of rifle uh, grenade that came all the way through the building, hit over over the have you, have you pushed forward?
5: In the front ranks of the Marines, a man is suddenly wounded. been hit in the eye by shrapnel from an enemy B-40 rocket. Despite the obvious pain, doctors later told him he will not lose the eye. And although the sound of the blast punctured his eardrum, he will not lose his hearing. But all the time, the Marines have had their eyes on that enemy flag. It's flying on a pole in front
2: of the province capital building. We've got Charlie on the run behind him. They're cutting him down now. As soon as the pink one's secure... Finally, the assault.
5: They're approaching what used to be the most important government building in the province. Now, with no province government at all, it has no significance at all except for the flag in front. uh, 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 With fighting still going on just a few yards away, Marines have risked their lives to pull down this symbol no one is quite sure where the american flag came from in the middle of a battle like so many things when you need something someone just happens to have it there was no bugler and the other marines were too busy to salute but not often is a flag so proudly raised. all right all right give me this uh. Hungry, hard hotel company. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it. Are you finished? We want to get the hell out. Fifteen. Hey, buddy. Hey, That's hey, certainly a surprise. Get
1: the man in check. He's
5: over here. Come on, now. One
1: now. You go. Stay
5: alive. Hey, get over here and help me drag this man out of here. Rimming the edge of the courtyard, someone noticed small holes camouflaged. In almost every one, there's an enemy soldier. A few dead from the day shooting, but some still alive. Others are not so lucky. Marines yeah. fire into the holes. one is lucky. He stuck his arms out of the hole and surrendered as the Marine approach And he's pulled out alive and uninjured. Uh, oh, there we go. Somebody find a piece of blindfold, a piece of rag over there. Just don't know back over there. Hey, Sometimes these prisoners can be very useful, giving valuable intelligence information. But in this battle in Hue, it's been going on for so long now, and there are so many prisoners, there's really nothing left to be learned. For one of the few times in the Vietnam War, the U.S. Marines are really in their element in this battle in Hue. Right now, this province headquarters is the front line, and they're holding an assault much like those that have made them famous in other wars. And to a great extent, this assault is being won or lost on the basis of sheer courage. And there's no shortage of that among the Marines. Don Webster, CBS News, in Huey.
1: Now that we have a feel, and I hope you do have a bit of a feel, for urban uh, conflict, I'd like to now go into how we ended up fighting in the city of Huey and at places like Quezon and and Saigon, and throughout Vietnam uh, in 1968. It was quite interesting. Toward the end of 1967, the reality was that the North Vietnamese and Viet Cong were really not winning the war. In fact, there was a great deal of concern by both Ho Chi Minh and General Giap, who, of course, headed his armies. And in the late summer, early fall, Giap and Ho Chi Minh sat down and they made a bold decision. They looked and they said, you know, throughout all these years of the war, every time the Tet Holiday comes along, everybody just simply stands down. It's about a two-week holiday period. We They put into effect a ceasefire. Half of the Vietnamese army goes, or more, goes home to their villages and their homes, and it's really a period that perhaps the Allied forces are to be or would be the most vulnerable. So Giap and Ho Chi Minh at the time made a decision. They said that during Tet of 1968, that what they would do is they would cause a great offensive and a general uprising. Now, this was a tremendous chance, a tremendous risk that they were taking because what it called for was their divisions of North Vietnamese Army to come down and into the fight into the south. It called for all the Viet Cong units to come up, and then those hidden guerrilla units All to surface and be part of that fight during Tet of '68. And that's why you would see across the entire peninsula, you would see this fight going on, whether it be in the south and Saigon and that vicinity, or whether it be at Khe or Kanchen or Wei City or in the Pleiku area. It was that total general offensive. And what was hoped was, in fact, the people would do an uprising. The interesting thing at the time is that the U.S. forces were going through a dramatic change of their own. And that was that General Westmoreland and his command had made the decision that because things were as they were and because they felt that the greatest threat was up in the northern portion, up here in I-Corps, which was the responsibility for the 3rd Marine Amphibious Force, that really that needed to be reinforced, and that Army units needed to be moved up, and that Marine units needed to be moved forward, up along the demilitarized zone, uh, up into Quang Tri, up along the border with Laos and into Khe San, and to fill that whole northern portion. That operation was called checkers, and checkers was to take place during that November-December time frame. So what you're going to find during the battle, or during the Tet Offensive, is you're going to find disparate units caught up in this fight because they're moving to new locations. And it would complicate the fight very much. As an example, At the time, the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, uh, were in a place out here uh, south and west of Da Nang, and they would be moved all the way up into the Fubai area. And I was blessed and and honored to uh, command Hotel Company, and we would be one of the first to move in that direction. So you have all of this movement that's still taking place at the same time, that Tet would, in fact, occur. Now let's take the battle for Way City. Way is a very interesting city in its own right because the reality is it is two cities in one. It is the old imperial capital. It is an area designed after the Forbidden City in Beijing and constructed uh, at a time in the early uh, 1800s, the early 19th century. However, the southern part of the city is entirely different. That's the intellectual capital, or was the intellectual capital of Vietnam. It's here, very French provincial in its types and its style. It's here that both Ho Chi Minh and Giap were educated. It's here where the university is, the hospital is, the radio stations are. And in fact, it's this intellectual community and the community of, of way that will be almost entirely isolated in many ways from the war. You might remember that it was the intellectual community that quite frankly didn't quite ever listen nor like the government in Saigon. They equally did not like communism and what was coming in the way of the Viet Cong and what was coming from the north. And they kind of had their own world. The interesting thing also was that there were really no US forces responsible for way. It was strictly a Vietnamese security requirement. We had advisors there, but it was strictly to be defended if at all, by the Vietnamese. What would occur in the lead-up of late January of 1968 would be as Tet on the night of January 30th would occur and the great offensive would occur throughout the country. What would have happened would be into Way City an entire division of North Vietnamese plus numerous Viet Cong units would in fact have infiltrated the city. It's important to note that it is two cities in one. And as we go along, while I'm going to talk about primarily the fight to retake this portion of the city, there are really three very distinct fights that will occur. The U.S. Marines are responsible to retake the southern portion of the city. The Vietnamese, under the 1st Arvin Division commander, commanding general, are responsible to recapture the citadel. And our great brothers from the 1st Air Cav, or 1st Cavalry Division, who very, quite frankly, are never recognized or too often not recognized for the Battle of Way will fight a tremendous fight in this north and northwest area to try to isolate and to try to support the Vietnamese. So there are going to be three very distinct fights that will occur. On the night of the 30th, by this time, the city had been completely infiltrated. The North Vietnamese and Viet Cong had, in fact, put on arvin. Republic of, Army Republic of Vietnam uniforms, civilian attire, and the like, and completely had inundated the city. What they didn't do, however, was that as the fight began, there were two locations that would hold. And that is in the Citadel, the 1st Arvin Division headquarters under General Trong. And down here on the southern side, the MACV compound. That was a compound of American advisors who were advisors to the the, uh, Vietnamese forces. This would become key and critical in the battle. There are three enduring principles in any kind of fight to regain an urban area, to retake a city. The first is to isolate the city. In the case of way, neither the North Vietnamese nor we the U.S. ever satisfactorily isolated that city. From the enemy's side, quite frankly, the fight that went on with the first cab was so bitter that the area going along the Perfume River all the way out to the Ashaw Valley and into Laos was never secured. On the southern side of the river, the same was true. So that the enemy had a complete, throughout the whole 30 days of that battle, they had a complete supply line, a complete line of reinforcement that was unhampered. At the same time, we the US forces They didn't do a very good job either. They tried. First and foremost, we did get the air cab up here. So that, they helped. And they had a heck of a fight. Route 1 that went south, they never really closed off. Although they eventually would blow the bridge into the southern portion of the city across the Fukam Canal and blow up these two respective bridges. What they never did and thank God for the U.S. Navy, what they never did was close off the Perfume River. And what would happen would be the Navy and LCUs, landing craft, utility, some swift boats, some sampans would get down along the coast, they would pick up the logistics that was required, and they literally would make the run up the river. There's a boat ramp right here big stadium over here, boat ramp right there, so that throughout that entire battle, supply or logistics did not become a problem to the U.S. forces. So as you can see in both cases, that enduring principle, in fact, failed on both sides. The second enduring principle in a in fight to retake a city is to select your entry point. In this particular case, the entry point was already selected for us. That is, that initially we had to fight our way and get in to rescue the McAfee compound. And literally, the, he would, Trong would bring in his forces and get them as much as possible into this area and over the, the airfield. But eventually when we would send the Marines, the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, to support him, they would go across the river and they too would start from this 1st Urban Division Headquarters. Uh, one historian went to put it, you know, the unusual point of it, instead of fighting from the outside in, this was a fight from the inside out. And it would make a very big difference. The third enduring principle of any kind of urban conflict is the fact of deciding on the tactics that you will use to, in fact, take down this enemy. The tactics that were decided by our forces, and there were really little choice in it because our forces were outnumbered, was that it would be a house-to-house or a frontal, a house-to-house, block-by-block fight. This is a quick look at an actual intelligence map, and what you can see very quickly That entire portion of the city now is under control of the North Vietnamese, in this case the 4th North Vietnamese Regiment, with just the McVie compound holding out, and that this portion, except for here and some fighting going on here, the citadel is completely held by the North Vietnamese, and that is how the battle for Way City will begin. What I found as a company commander and what my Marines found in the southern portion of the city is that the enemy defended in strong points. I think they clearly expected that what would happen would be that we would come into the city, it would not be U.S. forces, it would be Arvin forces, they would be, in, and I, would be in armored personnel carriers, they would immediately come in, run up the Leloy Street which was parallel uh, to the Perfume River and had all of the government buildings, the hospital, the school, and so forth, the university, so forth, along it, and it would make a quick run to the Capitol building, to the jail, and seize it. And that's how they defended. Every other block, a strong point, built in such a way that if this kind of offensive or this kind of tactic had been used, literally they would have trapped it along lelois Street and destroyed it. When our forces came at it in a regard of house to house, room to room, that really, in fact, did what do we say, screw up their dope. You know, it really did. But it would be a very intense fight. And they would defend, they would defend extremely strongly. The fight that I'll first describe is that fight on the southern side. And you can see that it was, in fact, the intellectual, capital uh, of the country this is Way University hotel company would initially uh, seize Way University but it would be two days before we could start the real attack that in fact would seize the treasury and then eventually seize the capital you can see where we began and it's my opinion, and this is strictly my opinion, but I think the books today uh, show it, is that the North Vietnamese intended to stay in way. As we fought and as when we eventually recaptured the capital, I found, we found the payroll for enti- entire division-sized units. If you look at the study of the fight within the citadel across the river, you see the very same thing. You see captured documents and the like that says they did not expect that you know Wei had been an open city. they expected to go to Wei and they expected to stay in Wei. And that fight would last for 30 days. And even at the end, as those North Vietnamese units were leaving, the citadel. There was still a reluctance by their command group, by the overall command, to have them withdraw. But they had, in fact, been defeated. I think the second part, though, of what they were trying to do is if they could not hold, that what they hoped to do is to ensure that we did enough destruction of that wonderful city as to, in fact, turn the people against the allied forces. There was a lot less destruction of the city than uh, many of you have seen or this and the next picture show. This happens to be the treasury building. And the reason for that is that as you know uh, when our news media covers these things what are you going to do? You cover uh, that which is most sensational. Peter Preistrap of the Washington Post, I think, put it uh, best. And when he he said, you know, if you look at the cities of Seoul or you look at the cities in World War II, uh, the comparison is is nil. The simple fact is, is that much of the city of Wei did, in fact, survive. And if you go there today, you will find a very beautiful city. It would take several days to get into the fight there was absolutely no intelligence. The higher headquarters had no idea. All the way back to Saigon, there was no idea that in fact Hue City had been totally infiltrated, that it was controlled by at least a division or more of North Vietnamese Army. And the orders that came out of headquarters to seize this or do that Unfortunately, it would cause a great deal of casualties, again, because, first of all, intelligence did not know what was happening, and commanders at the higher level did not understand the difficulty of fighting in an urban area. Let me take the first story. We were piecemealed into that battle. The first companies that were piecemealed came from Alpha Company, the 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and Gulf Company of the 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines, under a command group of the 1st Battalion. They would fight and get their way into the city after fighting through numerous ambushes. They would, in fact, get into the MacVe compound. You remember that was there, where it was on the... Turn. They would get into the MacVe compound, and they would be ordered... One of these companies pretty well beat up already... And Golf Company would be ordered to go across that bridge over to the Citadel and seize it. Well, Golf Company mounted out. First thing they hit about midway through that bridge was a machine gun that was tearing them apart. They would clear that out. They would turn left. They would start along the Citadel Wall, and you can imagine that they were a little marine rifle company facing an entire regiment. They would have to fight their way back across the bridge and reoccupy the MACV compound. The second unit was, and I, I might tell you that at the time, we were in a very big fight, because Ted had started, down in the Troy River Valley. And in fact, we had done so well that we had pushed NVA battalion, and had them backed into a river, backs against the river, were about to destroy them and got pulled off the fight and then sent north by company. So you see you're piecemealed into the battle. Fox Company would come in by helicopter and occupy the MacV compound. The third day after hotel was moved up, we would put together a convoy was resupply was required, we'd have a couple of army dusters with us, and we would fight our way up and into that McVee compound. And I can tell you, I remember it as clear as day. We got ambushed, and fortunately we had practiced our immediate action drills and broke through and whipped that ambush. But as we approached the MACV compound, I had this unbelievable vision um, I'm in the frontier and the Indians are riding around the fort, and everybody's firing from the windows trying to defend it. We would fight our way in. We would occupy the Way University that day, and the battle would begin. Throughout the entire battle, we were outnumbered, and our flank was always exposed. The picture you see here is really of the first day uh, Today, that uh, what was then the Way University is a five star hotel, by the way, that you're seeing there. The first day of the battle was just this an exchange close in of our uh, rifle propelled grenades and our own 3.5 rocket launchers until Fox Company could get up abreast. And the first assaults that would take place in that southern portion of the city was for a Hotel Company with the perfume river on its right to seize the public health complex, provide supporting fires into the treasury building, that huge building that you saw, so that Fox Company could fight its way in there, inch by inch, room by room. The interesting thing about that, and I think this is awfully important, you know, I (laughs) I was a wise old young captain. I was going to say probably something I shouldn't have. You know, I was one of them wise captains, you know. And I had read the book, and what's it say? It says, okay, if you're going to send your, your assault across the street, you pop smoke, and that smoke billows up, and you run your, you know, first fire team across the street, search and destroy. The North Vietnamese had read the same book. <laughs> so when we popped smoke and that fire team ran, boom. About six blocks down but totally covering that street was an enemy machine gun who knocked my four young men down. We got them in. Well, what are we going to do? Well, there's this wonderful thing called Lance Corporals. And, you know, I had my lieutenants together. Okay, how are we going to do this? And I had assigned to me a 106 recoilless rifle, and I'll show you that in just a minute. I had his six, and was on a mule, and it was commanded by a lance corporal, and he had a PFC, who was his gunner. And he said, Skipper, I know how to do this. Sir, I'll roll the gun down the way university steps. I'll turn the gun. I'll fire the gun. Sir, you know how big the shell is. That'll make them pull down their heads. You know how the back blast is. All that smoke. You can run the whole company across the street if you want. I didn't have a better idea but just what that Lance Corporal said happened. He and his gunner rolled that gun out into the street. Now, you've got to understand, there's just the world snapping around them in rounds. i had forgotten that he had a good gunnery sergeant. And the gunnery sergeant said you'd never fire the 106 unless you fire the spotting rifle first, 50 caliber on the top. So here's the world cracking around, him. they're going through gun drill. Fire the 50, fire the 50. Come on, fire the 50. He finally likes where the 50 hits, and he fires the 106. And my fellow company commander just in the next block says he, th- he saw that big round, thought it went that close to his nose. But just what that Lance Corporal said happened. That machine gun tucked in. We ran the company across the street. We're then able to provide back and suppressing fires, ran it under you know. And the rest is history. You know what that's called? That's called Lance Corporal ingenuity and PFC Power. And it's alive and it's well today. <laughs> Your young men and women who are in Iraq and Afghanistan, just, they, just, they, just, they just illustrate it every day. They are the epitome of it. You know, you've heard about the, you know, the, the strategic corporal. It's because those young people lead the way. Again, the fight... And that's a 106. And I really should tell you quickly a story about this. We were having a heck of a time getting into that treasury building. Couldn't blow it up. So our commander said, okay, take this 106, put it up on the second deck of that of the university, and you know, you fire that thing, it's going to blow down the, the that big steel door. We get a breach. Well, all of us tried to tell the commander, wait a minute, you, you know, you have this big black back blast, you know? I think it's going to do it yes sir well that young staff sergeant there on the on the far side of the gun knew better what he did yep he lined it all up but he found the longest lanyard you could ever find <laughs> and he and his guys got all the way back about 3 3 block or three uh, rooms uh, classrooms back and they pulled that well you know just commander was right it knocked down the door now the gun was hanging out of the way university and you know half the side was out but the gun wasn't that damaged, and it can be put back together. So you can see, again, a bit of ingenuity. And this is what I was talking about. That's that young Lance Corporal. I don't know who got this, uh, this shot. You can see it's damaged a little. But he rolled that gun out, and he made that happen. Made happen what needed to happen. The fight would continue. As I told you, each one of these, every other block was defended as a strong point. A strong point was normally two or three stories of a building, and then just as you saw in that film, all of them had a courtyard. The courtyard faced Leloy and faced the crossing street. They built spider holes, or what we would know as foxholes, in the, behind that fence, and all those fence were, were stone and picket-type fences, not wood picket, but metal or uh, cement-type picket or concrete type picket. So you can see that as you assaulted those buildings, you had to blow the breach of get through that barrier and then blow the breach to get into the building itself. The fight would continue throughout that area and would continue until we got to the Capitol building. And you saw an example of that in the Cronkite film. What we found once we were able to seize the Capitol building, was that on the southern side, the resistance collapsed. We had beaten through the strong points. The tactics were not what they expected, and they would withdraw across the Fucam Canal and to the west and hold in the west. But it was just then that the fight would start over in the Citadel. On the 12th of February, the first units of the 1st Battalion, 5th Marines, would in sampans and some landing craft go across the Perfume, up and into that 1st Arvin Division headquarters and then start the fight down through the southern, and they had the southeastern sector. That fight, as I said would last till the end of the month. The fight across the way was an entirely different one. And it was different because the streets in the citadel area were all narrow and houses very tightly packed together. The citadel itself, built just like a citadel is supposed to. So those Marines and those uh, soldiers of the Vietnamese Army and Vietnamese Marine Corps had a very, very difficult and challenging fight. I want to, as we move toward the question period, there are three things I want to cover with you that I think are important. What you see here is a W88 gas or tear gas grenade launcher. Yes, we used tear gas, and we used it very, very effectively. Tear gas is no longer allowed today for our armed forces, but I will tell you what it enabled us to do by using the launchers is to put gas down on that strong point, and while the enemy was busily trying to put their mask on, was to make, as this platoon, or the first platoon of hotel company, is making the run through the breach that has been blown to get in to the capitol building. The second thing is you often hear that armor uh, is sometimes not that effective within the city. I would tell you that's absolutely not true. But it requires good close tank infantry tactics. It requires taking your armor, putting it with your infantry, hiding it in buildings and whatever, and then bringing it out when it is required. Because quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, when you need a tank, only a tank will do. (laughs) And that's the infamous Antos. But what it all comes down to, and I've already indicated to you with Lance Corporal Ingenuity and PFC Power, it all comes down to that young American. That young American, and that's what you can be so proud of, who's intelligent, who's innovative, who's got pride, and says, the job's got to get done. We're going to make it happen. We'll figure it out. And it's, you know, the thing that makes us different? I've had a lot of time to study the, Soviet, the former Soviet Union's forces as a mentor. They couldn't hold a candle to us if we had ever gone to war with them. And the reason is they don't have an NCO and a junior officer corps that in fact can take the lead and make things happen. And that's what our young people do today. The second thing that I think is important, and it's important as you think about what happens, whether it be in Iraq or Afghanistan, is in the urban area, no matter what you do to try to prevent it, you are always going to encounter civilians. And it is a difficult, difficult challenge. <clears throat> Quick story. We had held up for the night, had a platoon up front, Circle Sportif along the rivers there, and a big school complex in front of us, about the 1700 at night. Platoon commander said, skipper, so I've got about five civilians trying to get out. Get them in. Well, the enemy starts to take them under fire. Fortunately, we had the park next to us covered. We're returning fire. He calls back very excited. He says, sir, it's about 25. He calls back again. Sir, it's 50. Well, about 500 civilians who had all hidden in this school during the fight had to be brought back through the lines. Now, here they're under fire by the enemy and brought back through the lines and carried out. Civilians are a problem. We're blessed today with precision-guided weapons and all of that sort of thing. But remember that young sergeant or that young lieutenant or young captain or whatever has to make an instant decision when he is being shot at from a building and he's got casualties amongst his men. It's a challenge and always will be. And finally, don't ever think that we're not humanitarians this is true. This is a young Marine, just like you'll see it everywhere, that's all that old woman and she needed help so badly in that complex. He brave-fired to go get her and make sure she got back to safety. And finally, no matter what we like about, no matter how you think about it, unfortunately, the fight within any kind of city will always produce many, many casualties. It produces casualties because it's a great debris effect. It's not just a bullet that strikes or a piece of shrapnel. What happens is the debris becomes shrapnel. The debris becomes obstacles that break bones and legs and all of that sort of thing. So in that type of fight, the casualties are always high. And the casualties in Waste City were exceptionally high. And they were high for both. For the U.S., the Allies, there were some 600 that were killed in action, and some 3,800, 3,800, who would be wounded. Of that number, and I think this really needs to be remembered, of those killed in action, over 400 of them were Vietnamese soldiers. So they did, in fact, fight for That imperial capital. As far as the enemy is concerned, uh, it, is, it was estimated that between 2,500 and 5,000 had been killed. Uh, there is at least one captured document that notes a 1,042 killed in one portion of the battle. So it was a heck of a fight. And the point is, is when urban conflict occurs. Casualties can always be expected. But what we can never do is what we did in this country for about 10 years, maybe 12 after that war, and that is we went to a complete policy in our doctrine of urban denial. Ladies and gentlemen, we will always fight. If we're going to fight a war, if we're going to fight in a conflict, we will always fight in urban areas. Therefore, we better know how to do it and I'm pleased and proud, I happen to to have two sons that are Marine Battalion Commanders, Infantry Battalion Commanders. I'm pleased and proud to say we train them better today. They're better armed, they're better equipped, and they really make you proud. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, that was a quick overview. I'd like very much to take your questions. question about the, uh, uh, the waning of the political support. Uh, the troops have a job to do and they, they did it well. Uh, how did the troops respond to that later on as that public uh, support waned? I think, there, uh, I think everybody heard the question. I think there are two ways to, to answer the question. First of all, those who came back from the war and did not stay within the armed forces felt it a great deal. Uh, Let's be very honest, we did not treat those who served in the war very well as a society overall. Uh, So there was that group, and, and we're not, quite frankly, treated as well as they might. For those who stayed in, however, it's almost as if the culture of the services embraced them, and quite frankly, they saw what was going on, but they, you know, I have a job to do, I have things to do, and I, kept, you know, I keep on with it. So I don't think that, uh, that it was as damaging as uh, perhaps some have thought it was. But in my judgment now, where it was damaging is it was damaging on those who had served their country, had gotten out of the service, and now were trying to start their life. I hope I answered your question. Have you been back to Vietnam, and if not, would you go back? Yes, sir. Uh, I have been back to Vietnam four times. Uh, I had the great opportunity uh, in the early 90s. I was the director for operations for the Pacific Command. Uh, and I'm very honored to tell you that I, I was blessed to, um, to organize what we called in those days Joint Task Force Full Accounting. And in that role of forming Joint Task Force Full Accounting, and Joint Task Force Full Accounting are those today that you still see that bring the remains of those who were lost or missing in action in that, and we continue to do that today. That task force was the predecessor of that continuing effort today. So what I was required to do uh, was to negotiate on uh, three different times uh, by going into Hanoi, and then I went down into the south. Uh, the first time going in was when we had formed the Joint Task Force, had a great Army Brigadier General that was going to uh, to lead it, went in with General Jack Vessey, who was the pres- President's uh, emissary at that time, Presidential Emissary. We negotiated in Hanoi, we established the Joint Task Force, and we were able to begin at that time. I was able to, to visit throughout the country uh, The second time I went in was, again, for further negotiations to get our teams access. In this case, access, and we did this each time, access not just uh, in Vietnam, but access in Laos, which I found the most difficult, and Cambodia. Uh, So we did that. And then my final visit, uh, other than taking a historical group back a, a little bit later, uh, at that time was to go back and visit our teams throughout those three countries in the field, uh, finding remains and, and uh, bringing them in. Uh, I think where you're really probably going with your question is, how did you feel the first time you flew in? Well, I, you, know, you, you know, your stomach goes up into your throat a little bit, and you kind of you know, wonder what it's going to be all about. Uh, by the time that I was in the second, third, and whatever, um, I came away with a feeling, quite frankly, that uh, even though this war had been lost, I saw a vibrance in the Vietnamese people. I, I saw something that I probably wouldn't have thought I would see, but I, saw, I, I said, you know, they have never been friends of the Chinese, and when this old Politburo dies off, this is going to be a free enterprise country. And the reason I say that, the first time I went in very, you know, very stark, very... The second time I flew in, there were more mom-and-pop shops along the way from the airport. The third time I flew in, it looked like free enterprise zones up and down the road just because the Vietnamese were so industrious in that regard. Uh, maybe that's my way of saying, and I am a is half full guy, you know, Maybe that's my way of saying that uh, in the end maybe it will all come out as we had perhaps intended it to come out in the beginning. I hope I answered your question. Excuse me. (laughs) Yeah, I'd like to uh, go back a little bit and respond to the points you made. I was an infantry platoon leader in Vietnam. I got there in February of 68 and was there until February of 69 and got out of the service. And when I came back home and resumed my civilian life and I was totally bitter. I, I, you know, I just couldn't deal with it so I compartmentalized it and put it aside. And when the first Gulf War came and the troops were treated as heroes instead of the enemy, then I did a one hundred eighty also, you know, and, and that's just so great that the troops are getting the response that they get because we obviously didn't. You know, that is so important. And, and everything that you all do today uh, to ensure that our young men and women who go in harm's way because our government sends them in harm's way to protect those freedoms that we have, that in fact they do be recognized because they are tremendous, tremendous young people the thing I miss right now the most is the fact that I got to spend full time at the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation, where it's for after active duty for 11 years, I was a senior mentor and was out there with them. They are great, and you can be very, very proud of them. They're unbelievable. Yes, sir. I think uh, I've used up my time. I think there's one more here.
4: <laughs> I was in Vietnam about five or six years ago, uh, and I will say that it is a absolutely beautiful country. It's a wonderful place for uh, a, a tourist to visit. Uh, there's it, just everything about it is, is amazing. Uh, the first thing we were told when we arrived in Vietnam uh, by one of the uh, uh, by a Vietnamese. Uh, was you shouldn't keep referring to it as the Vietnam War. It's the, it was the American War. That's the way they referred to it. My question specifically is uh, during the battle for the Citadel, or, or the city for that matter, uh, were the enemy uh, generally uniformed?
1: That's a great question. They were both. The North Vietnamese units, uh, that is from the 4th and the 6th North Vietnamese Army Divisions, were in full uniform. In fact, they were, they were a little bit larger, a little bit bigger in size. They also had with them, though, uh, Viet Cong battalions of the, I think it was the, 80, the 88th and the 89th. These were the kind of the black pajama type uh, types uh, and the like. And One of the things that I did not mention uh, was it was those types... And, and it, I guess maybe it's another reason why I think historians today, and I certainly feel that they come to stay. The once that city was seized, as they did, and infiltrated, they literally went to the Capitol building. They took out the records of all the government employees. They took trucks, and they literally went from house to house where they had the addresses. And collected up those who worked for the government, and as I think many of you know, there was a huge mass grave of some 300 Vietnamese who were executed uh, because they did, in fact, work, you know, for the government. Um, hope I answered your question.